It's a blessing right now to be able to study God's Word and to uh, draw from the text, and I think a very uh, relevant subject, something at least it has been in, in my experience a number of years. I want to look at this morning uh, what the Scriptures have to say as far as Jesus uh, making wine. You may remember this, we read about this in John chapter 2. And so sometimes you get a back and forth. What does the Bible say on the subject of, uh, the subject of alcohol? What does the Bible say about wine? What do the scriptures have to say on this matter? And oftentimes you might hear that statement. You'll hear a quote, oh, because Jesus made wine as a justification. So we want to look at what Christ has done there. He did the miracle. He turned water into wine. So what do we think about that? And then how do we align that with other things that Christ has said? And so that is the beginning right here. So we're looking at Jesus makes wine. And and then he also gives us warnings about uh, carousing, drinking, uh, drunkenness, and what the scriptures have to say on this matter. So I think it's a very interesting subject for us to, to fascinate on. It helps us to rightly handle God's word, to put things in perspective, to understand uh, and to rightly handle uh, the truth. Um, in regards to subjects like this can often be controversial. And I've been in some situations where I know personally, I said, you know, I've heard somebody say, well, you know, Jesus made wine. And so they use that to justify a uh, very the way that they were living. And, and I'd say, I don't think that's quite, you know, he didn't quite make the kind of wine that you're thinking of today. So we're going to look at that, and we're looking at a number of scriptures on that in a moment. Before we get into our text, we're going to go to John chapter 2 and look at this miracle in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's an amazing work of Christ. Before we do that, I ask that you pray with me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are holy, and you are compassionate and loving, and you give us grace. And Father, we ask your blessings upon us now in the study of your word. Father, I ask personal blessings for myself and upon all who are studying Looking at your word now, help us, Father, to rightly handle your word, to uphold the truth, and not to compromise. Father, we ask that you give us strength through difficult times, through sin and temptation that we face. May the things that we study today encourage us and lead us in the right direction to cling to you, to always return to you, to lean upon your your grace and your forgiveness. We ask that you forgive us as we forgive others, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we look at the subject here in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast and the wedding in Cana. And we're going to go over there and let's go on and read and make some observations. If you have a bulletin, you'll be able to follow along. I made some points there and to go along with the observations. And there's some fill in the blank there as well. So we're with John chapter 2. I have two Bibles up here and I already marked, I marked the wrong one. But let's just take me a second. John chapter 2. Here we are. All right, look in verses 1 through 11. And on the third day, so it's been three days, just to give a little bit of context, you, you go back and you read it and you see that Jesus has been calling his disciples uh, since he has been baptized and he's setting out on his ministry. And it's the third day from that time. He's got new disciples with him. That's the meaning of it here. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, 
Whatever he says to you, do it. So evidently she knew something about Jesus. And maybe he's done something like this before. And coming to this conclusion, you know, Jesus can handle this. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 6. It says, And now there was set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner, manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some now. And take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that had been made, and did not know where it was from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Very important miracle here. And so, something to note, there's some details to look at here, some observations that I see here from the text. So Jesus had just called his disciples, and this is at the beginning of his ministry. His ministry begins at Passover, and you see that at the end of this chapter, the beginning of Passover and his work. So a little bit before that time, and I think that's something to note when you begin to put things together, what's happening here. All right, Jesus says, and he says this to his mother, my time has not yet come yet. It hasn't come yet to do the signs of ministry. It was almost there. It was right then. And yet he does it anyways. He, he consents to his mother and he does these great signs and it's for a purpose. It shows his glory and it helps his disciples, his new disciples to come and believe in who he is. And so he acts upon his mother's request. What else do we see here? We see these six stone jars. I always think about that. It's like that would have been massive to be able to pick those up and to move them. Uh, I assume they just kept them in a certain spot and probably didn't move them much, filled them up with water. And that's why they drew out from it. But to think about 20 to 30 gallons. Now, when I think about this miracle, the other one that comes to mind that we talked about a, a few weeks ago, or was it maybe two weeks ago, the feeding of the 5,000. Remember that? We studied that. Christ being the bread of life right here in the Gospel of John. You remember that in that, that Christ made an abundance, right? So not only did they take the five loaves and the two fish and feed 5,000 men, plus their families and anybody else who's traveling there, there was abundance of 12 baskets full of bread left over. And so in this case, Christ doesn't go a little way. He didn't make a little bit. He makes a whole bunch of this. All right. And then we see Jesus' instructions are with authority. He gives instructions here. And that, that authority that comes with it is along, comes along with the miracle. It's the, it's the work of God's authority. So Jesus' instructions were authoritative and simple. You fill the jars with water and then what? Draw the water out and give it to the head waiter, to the master of the feast. This is another thing that stands out to me about this event. It says that there was good wine. And so the Master of Feast calls it good wine. He makes reference to that. And this is to be noted. If you look there in John 2, the next thing is coming the Passover. Now, I think this is very important to note. What is good wine? Especially when you're coming up on Passover. You've had a whole year since the first press of grapes and then the second press or any other presses after that. And so it, at this point, what you have has just been left over. Now that back then they did have ways of preserving grape juice. They would boil it down to a concentrate and add water later on. They had things like that. They'd put it in sealed containers, put it in some moving water like a river to keep it cool throughout the year. But even at that, it would still ferment. So what do we, what do, we do with this as thinking about this good wine and what kind it is? Why is it that usually they would give the good wine and then give the inferior? In this case, Christ made the best, right? So he does this amazing 
amazing miracle of providing an abundance right before the Passover. And so the head waiter there praises the groom for this, for saving the best for last. I think it also shows back then a little bit about their culture as far as the weddings and uh, uh, who was paying for it too. So you just think about those things. I always follow those away and they're interesting to think about. Okay, so the head waiter here, the, the head of the feast... Uh, implies that everyone has freely drunk so that they were filled with this wine, what, what Christ has, has made here. Now, the word for filled there and freely drunk is the Greek word methuo, and it, it appears throughout the New Testament and is usually translated as drunk, as in intoxicated. So I want you to put that in perspective. Well, that wouldn't make sense, would it? That here these people have gathered for this wedding feast. They've drunk up all this wine and everybody is intoxicated or filled with this with, with wine. And then Jesus makes more of it. Does that make sense? It didn't really align with the rest of the scriptures and things that we read about. So what the word also means, there's what we read right there. They freely drunk it. In other words, the word also literally means that they are filled with it. They're filled with this, whatever they, they've been drinking. And then he makes some abundance more of it. Okay? And we'll look some more at, about these details. Again, I don't want to just overshadow the whole miracle right here. This is the earliest of Jesus' miracles in his life. And we need to look at it. And it's not, this is not a passage for you know, some preachers to point out and say, see, this is why. I remember growing up, a friend of mine, he's, he, the church he grew up in, they had a priest. And he's like, oh, the priest was always drinking. He's, he was drunk at church and all this kind of thing. All right, and then you got, you know, preachers, priests on one side and then preachers on the other side um, teaching all kinds of strange things. We're just going to go with the Bible and draw out what the text says this morning on the subject of these matters. But I don't want to overlook the fact that this is a great miracle of Christ and the first that we have recorded in the Gospels of what he did in his life and his ministry. Christ did these wonders again as signs. You notice that throughout the Gospel, uh, Gospel of John. They're for signs to demonstrate his power and his, his authority. So don't want to overlook that um, this morning, that he does this so that the people would believe. But let's think a little bit more about what has happened here. So a lot of people, I've heard this reference before. I've been to some social gatherings as well where someone said, hey, we got a cooler of this over here. And they're like, so just want to warn you, preacher. You know, that's usually what I get. I want to warn you, preacher, that that's over there. And, uh, and they're like, well, and Jesus made wine. And, you know, and that's usually the comment I'll hear. I'll hear that comment a lot. Um, I don't know what the context of discussions you've ever had on these matters or what it's like when you go and you visit your family in your hometown, but I'm often being confronted with these things. And so this is the reasoning I'm hearing. So why would Jesus do this miracle to make water into wine when the people were filled with wine? Uh, one reason I'm going to show you in a minute is this is not quite the wine as what we would think about today. Okay, that's one thing that stands out here in the text. Um, I saw a funny article, satire article, if you're familiar with Babylon Bee, and it named a famous conservative preacher and said that he went to a wedding feast and turned the wine into water. So I thought it was kind of funny. But uh, to, to reverse it, because a lot of, you know, that's what you would expect, wouldn't you? You know, if you're taking the, this uh, very uh, conservative position and outlook, as we've often do, and we see what the Bible says in the Old Testament, New Testament, about warnings about drunkenness and excessive drinking and warnings about what alcohol can do to you, <clears throat> you would think, why would Jesus do this in this context? So there's a lot of questions that come to mind. 
All right, so when do we usually hear about this? Again, the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. You know, sometimes you hear it in country songs. And think of one right now, top of my head, because Jesus drank wine. You know, you, I don't know if you know what I'm referring to. I'm not going to name it all right now. You can go look it up. But you hear that. The reasoning is, Jesus drank it, Jesus did it. Then, And in this case, in John chapter 2, then it must be okay. Every bit of it. And that, that seems to overlook what the rest of the Bible has to say. So what does the Bible say? What Christ has to say on these matters? So let's take a look at that, a wine in the Bible. First of all, the word wine in the Bible, let's take a look at what it means. Uh, it can be alcoholic or non-alcoholic. And I'm going to show you that in a minute. I'm going to give you a number of scriptures. In fact, I'm probably going to go too fast. You're not going to be able to write every one of them down. I'll show them to you as we go. But the Bible uses one Greek word, in, in, one in Greek, for grape juice and for wine. It's the same. It's the same Greek word. And we'll talk about the fermenting process too. So as you look at this, when he's made this, he's made good wine. And so my impression from reading this, all right, this is my impression, my inference, okay? Understand what I'm saying. When I hear good wine, I'm thinking all the wine that we've had throughout this year has dwindled down to what we got left. It's not the best. And now Jesus has come and produced it. And at that time, right before the Passover and right before the feast of first fruits, before the first press has come, to me, I get the impression he's making the first press of grape juice. That's my understanding. And that's the quality of it. Um, now, again, look at the text here. You have to make the decision on your own on what's been happening here. But again, the Bible, the Greek word is oinos, wine or grape juice. And depending on the context you read it, you've got to look. Because we have warnings against drinking oinos. And of course, it's saying don't get drunk with it. And, or be filled with it. We have these other words here, Hebrew, we've got three different Greek words, Tarash, Kemer, Yagin, all these words uh, referring to wine in the Old Testament. You also have references to strong drink in the Old Testament. I've heard some people go to like, I think Deuteronomy 14 has a reference to, you take your money and go buy wine and strong drink. Now what is that? Someone said, well that's liquor, and see I can, I can drink hard liquor. Or it could be the other meaning of it in Hebrew, just simply cider, what has been uh, concentrated and built back up and has been boiled. And, you know, what, what position will we take in that? Knowing everything that we know about the Bible, what the Bible has to say on the subject of alcohol and wine, which is it? You know, that, that's it. We want to take those other passages to fully understand what we're reading here and not just simply take this event out of context. All right, so the Bible includes a number of examples of unfermented wine. For instance, wine is talked about being in the grape. All right, what's in the grape? Well, grape juice. Okay, so again, it's showing that word and it's in the context of being of non-alcoholic. Okay, and there's two passages there in Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 32. <clears throat> We also see this, that again, the description of wine being in the grape from Isaiah 65 and verse 8. You have wine as it refers to the juices in the grape from the field as they're being pressed and being brought in. They haven't fermented yet. You know, it, it takes at least a week of, for fermentation of, of grape juice. And it takes other additional ingredients. All right. Um, you can take grape juice and set it out. And sometimes we'll leave the Lord's Supper out too long. I'll find it in the middle of the week and be like, nobody put it away. And there's something that's been formed on top of it. Um, and then sometimes you can smell the alcohol that's formed in it. You know how much alcohol will form in about a week? So it gets wild yeast in the air, lands in the grape juice. And the most it can form is up to 3%. So almost no effect, you know, at 3% on, 
on somebody. Now, each percentage you go up, it has a greater effect on someone who would drink that. All right, but I'll, I'll get more to that in a minute. So we see these passages in the Bible. We also see the juice of the wine press also being called wine before it's even fermented. So when we read John chapter 2, what is it that Jesus made there? All right, I'm going to infer from what I read through the rest of the Scriptures about what the Bible says that He's making fresh pressed grape juice. That's the reference there and the meaning of it when we think about biblical wine. <clears throat> in the Bible, the wine that you read about is between 0 to 10% alcohol. All right, in the ancient world, yeah, they used to get drunk, and so they, people would like that, and so what did they do? They would take wine, and they would add sugar to it, and then um, they would also add yeast. And that's how they would get it up to 10%. Otherwise, if you just leave it alone, it can only get up to about 3%. And I'm going to give you some sources for that in a minute. I've done my research on it. I did a lot of graduate study, one of my graduate papers on this. But the sugar in the grape juice naturally can only get maybe 4%. I've seen some say, suggest it could get to 4%, but most of it is about 3% with wild airborne yeast. Uh, the grape juice... For it to exceed 4% alcohol, the winemaker must add yeast and, and uh, also additional sugars to get it up to, I've seen the highest number was 10.8, okay? So it's usually about 4 to 10%. And then the alcohol at a certain point begins to kill off the yeast so it doesn't get any higher than that. Now today, the wines that you see about today, I've even read, I was reading these magazines and sources and people were, and like in Italy and Spain, were complaining about the alcohol content because they used to drink what they considered this mild version of wine and now wine today has reaching levels of alcohol that's on the border of brandy, of liquor, okay, like it has been distilled. And so the modern fermentation for today's wine, and so... I always thought about that. I've, I've walked through Walmart and Publix and times in the past just to look at the wine, and then I thought just to look at you know the alcohol content, and then I thought maybe the preacher shouldn't be standing here doing that. That would be look kind of weird. But anyways, but I've read some of these things about these events, and and so over in Europe today, there's a big controversy over it because it's exceeding. It's getting 12 to 18 percent alcohol using sulfur dioxide and then this new genetically modified gene, um, genetically modified yeast called Saccharomyces. And so Saccharomyces is, they'll take it and use these late ripened grapes to produce a higher alcoholic level. What am I saying all this for? <clears throat> the Bible, I mean, in the biblical times, the wine that you read about in the Bible if it doesn't say it's alcoholic and there's no context to infer, I wouldn't infer that it has any alcohol or very little. And if it does, if it's warning against drunkenness, then it might be as much as 10%, but it's not comparable. Like every 1% it goes up, it's not comparable to the wine today that is being sold and purchased in the stores. And you can check me on this. In fact, there's some sources back there. I don't know if you can see it on the screen. I'll give you a whole bibliography at the end of this lesson. You can go and look it up and study these things for yourself. Just put it in perspective. Here you'll find these charts. They often say, you know, this is the equivalent. A lot of people don't know what they're drinking, you know. And so when you look at alcohol, you got 12 ounces of beer right there is equivalent in alcohol to 8 ounces of malt liquor. And malt liquor is always on there. And then the next one is wine. It's equivalent to 5 ounces of wine. Now, I've often heard people say, well, it's, it's wine. It's, and some have gotten the impression like wine has the least amount of alcohol. It has the least amount of effect. And it's not true. 
Certainly not in the wine today. Another thing you can put in the mix here are mixed drinks like martinis and uh, margaritas. So you go to the Mexican restaurant, there's margaritas. They can have uh, eight ounce margarita will have two or three shots of tequila in it. All right. You drink two of those um, and you're legally drunk, you know, within the hour while you're sitting there drinking that. So you think about that. And then right here you have liquor at the end. So five ounces of wine, which isn't much at all, is uh, equivalent to one shot of liquor. Kind of puts you in perspective in today's uh, wine. If you went back in biblical times, wine would be more lining up with the beer right here. But that's not, hit, not how it is anymore. So should someone reference Jesus turning water to wine, as we see in the text here? to justify their views about alcohol. I mean, you can answer that for yourself. You can see that from what we're studying here. Good wine. So Jesus makes good wine. As I mentioned before, my conclusion here is that Jesus here is not intoxicating. These people, I mean, you think about it. Let's say at this small town, they had 300 guests. That's a massive wedding, right? It's a big wedding, all right? I guess massive would be about 1,200, but I'm going to use that number two. But let's start with 300. And Jesus, let's say 150 gallons of wine was made, and it's intoxicating. Whether we use the standard back then are 10% or today about 15% being average. You're talking about every guest having another 6 to 12 drinks. Well, maybe he's just making it in abundance, just like with the, the feeding of the 5,000. You know, it wasn't intended to be drunk right then at that time and at that point. You know, a, a lot of reasoning can go behind that. But you start thinking about that. That's a lot. That's a, that's a massive amount. And it really doesn't line up with the rest of Christ's teaching and what we see from the apostles and prophets in the Bible. All right, if you were to quadruple that number and say 1,400 guests, again, you're still talking about two or three drinks per person, and they've already been filled. Remember that? It says they were filled, had freely drunken. So which makes more sense? What understanding and approach should we come when we read this in John 2 that Jesus has made here? So with Passover coming, again, the remaining wine would have been gone. And it makes sense to me that what he's making here is good wine, fresh wine. That's what has been given to them. So what about wine in the Lord's Supper? You know, that's also another one. You know, there's wine in the Lord's Supper, and that's what Jesus, he instituted communion with. Again, same points as before. But I want you to notice this. What kind of wine would have been at Passover? You ever thought about that? At Passover, what were you supposed to do with yeast and your, your bread? So they would accumulate sourdough bread. They would start it every Passover every year, and they would pass it around. And at the end of the year, they would throw it out, and they would get rid of anything with yeast. And so what would they not have in their house? They would not have this kind of highly intoxicating wine at the Passover. <clears throat> and so when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, what was he using? And when we read about the accounts of the Passover, of the, not just the Passover, but the Lord's Supper, what do we read about? What do we partake of? We use that word, the fruit of the vine. The fruit, and the word vine there in Greek literally means grapevine. That's what's used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in 1 Corinthians 11, when you read about the Lord's Supper, never says wine. Never. In connection with the Lord's Supper. Always fruit of the grapevine. Now, someone might say, what about 1 Corinthians 11? It mentions there that some of the people were coming to church. And imagine this, the problems in Corinth and in that church were extensive and people were getting drunk. Or it could be translated being filled 
with the drink. They weren't waiting for the other Christians to come. They were eating and drinking ahead of time. There were factions in the church. They didn't care about other, the other Christians there. But even if they were getting drunk, that would just be an even more disturbing thought there. None of that would go along in justifying and saying that this was wine or that it was supposed to be there. All right, what can Christians say about drinking? What does the Bible say? Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 21 and verse 34. <clears throat> but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, that's uncontrolled, excessive drinking, or drunkenness and cares of this life that the day come upon you unexpectedly. In other words, this way of living is not good. It's uncontrolled. There are a lot of sins that are involved in it. There are other things that are involved in this life. And you need to be ready. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, he says, you be sober at all times. Always be sober. Always be ready for the coming of the Lord. You have the right state of mind. You don't want to alternate in any way. And so we have these instructions about the Bible to always be sober. And we have these warnings about do not be filled, do not be drunk, do not drink excessively, and do not have any part in this. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, and this goes along with Galatians 5 as well. Listen to what Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You know, a lot of people today that will want to deceive you, that will want to con you. A lot of wickedness. In the, you know, go along with this. It's okay. And here are the things. Don't be deceived about neither fornicators, those are having sexual relations outside of marriage, nor idolaters, those are worshiping idols, nor adulterers, <clears throat> nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are strong words. You know, if you look at that list and you're like, well, that's not me. Well, good. For, I would be amazed, you know, because I can look at and I can at least see two things that have applied to me personally. You ever coveted before? You ever said a bad word about somebody? You're a reviler. That's what the reviler means. So these words are here. You're a, we're part of this group, and he's warning us, don't do it. And listen to what Paul says, and such were some of you. Implying what? That they repented. That God gave them the power. That their life was changed when they came to Him. And I would encourage anybody who struggles with any of these sins to never give up. To seek out Christ. To constantly pray. One of the best things you can do, not only to confess your, your sins to your Heavenly Father, is to find someone, a Christian that you trust in, to confess your sins to. James 5 and verse 16. Confess your sins. It says, As such were some of you, but you were washed. Notice this. What happened? What happened to you? You were washed. You were sanctified. In other words, you were made holy. You were justified. You were made right in the name of the Lord Jesus. When are you washed in the name of Jesus? When you're baptized and by the Spirit of our God. So we see the work of God in the Christian life. And I know that in the 1 Corinthians references this, that people, Christians, get caught up in these things, in these sins. And we need to come back to the Lord, go back to the Word, and find someone we can entrust in to help us through those difficult times. And again, we see that being filled with alcohol, the word for drunkard right there, is emphasized and they will not have their part in the kingdom. All right, First Peter chapter 4, Peter says the same things. He says, we want to do the will of God. He says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness. In lust, okay, that's immodesty and sexual sins and coveting. And in drunkenness, the word for drunkenness here is a different word. It means excessive drinking, revelries. That means wild parties. That would pro probably include the drinking here. Uh, drinking parties as well. Uh, abominable idolatries. 
In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in a flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So, if you've ever experienced that before, when you said, I can't be a part of that. I've had a few times in my life, I can't do that. I'm not going along with it, whether it's at work or with certain friends. I'm not going to participate in that. I can't do it as a Christian. And it takes changing your environment and the people that you are around to get away from these things. To get away from these sins, these things that should be in the past as we move forward. So as we look at these scriptures, and I can give you even twice as many of this this morning to just put it in perspective what the Bible says on drunkenness, what the Bible has to say about wine. I want you to look here, Ephesians 5 and verse 18, Paul says this, do not be drunk, that is filled with wine, which is dissipation. It's indulgence, it's wasteful, it's excessive, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice the contrast Be filled with the Holy Spirit is opposite than being filled with wine. Choose not to be filled with the spirits, but be filled with the Spirit. would be another way to put it in Ephesians 5.18. So like Christ and the biblical writers, Christians should warn about the abuses of alcohol. Throughout the Bible, we have warning after warning about the abuses. And I think it's fitting this morning to conclude with our scripture, our, our reading for this morning from Proverbs 23, verses 30 to 35, which we've already had read, but I want you to pay attention to it again. It says, those who linger long at the wine, so you have a warning here, and throughout the Bible, you, you need to warn. We warn each other, don't do this. Don't linger over the wine. In other words, don't spend your time around this and looking at it. Those who go in search of mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Don't be intoxicated by it. Don't don't be drawn in by it. He says, just by looking at it, you know, a lot of sins, just by looking at it, you've already given in to the temptation. You've already opened yourself up to it. He says, at last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. And just like that, it's just looking at it. You're already consumed it. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. And Solomon says, yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea you're just, just floating around. Or like one who lies at the top of the mast, you don't care about any danger. Saying, they have struck me and I was not hurt, you don't feel anything. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. And when I shall awake, then I may seek another drink. So you see the, the thinking that goes along there. That nothing affects you. Perverse things come into your life. It has a huge effect upon us. So we need to listen to the words here, listen to the scriptures, and take warning to remove and keep away from, from alcohol and excessive drinking from drunkenness, as the Bible tells us. 1 Corinthians 6.11, I think, is a very fitting passage to give an invitation this morning. We just read it a few minutes ago. You were washed in the name of Jesus, and you were such as you were one of them, but now you've repented. And I encourage you this morning... You need to repent. You need to make things right in your life. Do it. You need prayers and encouragement. You need to put on Christ in baptism. You can do that now. Having confessed your faith that Jesus is Lord, you can die to the old person, be, be buried in water, and rise to the newness of life. Whatever your needs are, whatever we can do for you, we encourage you to come right now. Let's stand and sing.